It's no okay. Chair staff is ready when you are. Great, thank you, and good evening, everyone. Thanks for your patience with us. Welcome to the June 21st, 2023 Preservation Commission meeting. The meeting is now called to order. Will the clerk please call the roll to establish a quorum? Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Burns? Present. Commissioner Montemayor? Present. Commissioner Nayer? Here. Vice Chair Root? Here. Chair McSopkin? Here. Thank you. We have a quorum. Great. Thank you. I would like to remind the members of the public and chambers that if you would like to speak on an agenda item, please turn in a speaker slip when the item begins. For members of the public who wish to join virtually, please refer to the agenda for the Zoom link. Once you have joined the meeting and wish to speak, use the raise your hand function to provide public comment when I confirm the public comment speaking period for your desired item. If you are online, click on raise hand on the bottom of your screen. In the mobile app, you can raise your hand by tapping the raise hand option in the more tab. And if you are calling in via telephone to raise your hand, dial star nine. Then to unmute or mute, dial star six. Speakers will be called on by the last four digits of their phone number. You will have two minutes to speak once you are called on. After the first speaker, we will no longer accept new speaker slips and the raise hand feature in Zoom will be disabled. We'll now proceed with today's agenda, starting with the land acknowledgement. Please rise. To the original people of this land, the Nisanan people, the Southern Maidu Valley and Plains Miwok, Poutland Wintoon peoples, and the people of the Wilton Rancheria, Sacramento's only federally recognized tribe. May we acknowledge and honor the native people who came before us and still walk beside us today on these ancestral lands by choosing to gather today, gather together today in the active practice of acknowledgement and appreciation for Sacramento's indigenous people's history, contributions, and lives. Thank you. Please remain standing for the Pledge of Allegiance with, from Commissioner Burns. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You may be seated. Our first business today is the consent calendar and the approval of the Preservation Commission meeting minutes. Clerk, are there any members of the public who wish to speak on this item? No, I have none on, none on Zoom and none in the chambers. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any commissioners who wish to speak on this item or make a motion? Yes, Commissioner Nair. Make a motion to pass the meeting minutes. We have a motion from Commissioner Nair to approve the minutes. Is there a second? Second. A second from Commissioner Montemayor. Uh, Madam Clerk, will you please call the roll? Thank you, Chair. Commissioner Burns? Yes. Commissioner Montemayor? Yes. Commissioner Nayer? Yes. Vice Chair Root? Yes. Chair McSlavkin? Yes. Thank you. Motion passes. Great. We'll now proceed to the discussion calendar section of the agenda, beginning with item two, public review draft of the Sacramento 2040 General Plan and Climate Action and Adaption Plan. Is there a staff presentation? It looks like it. 
project manager for the 2040 general plan. Also joining us remotely is Vic Randall, project manager for the climate action and adaptation plan. Today, my presentation is about a significant multi-year project called Sacramento 2040. It includes an update to two important planning documents, the city's general plan, the climate action and adaptation plan. Beginning on April 28th, the draft plans for both documents became available for public review. We're excited to share them with you today and to highlight key aspects of the plan for this commission. We'll start the presentation with some background, an overview of the project, then focus on the historic and cultural resources element. Finally, we'll talk about how we're collecting public input for these draft documents and the next steps prior to adoption in early 2024. A minute ago, I mentioned that Sacramento 2040 includes the general plan and the climate action and adaptation plan. The general plan is a document that's required by state law. It's a city's long-term 20-year vision or blueprint for urban development and preservation in the city. The climate action and adaptation plan positions the city to reduce greenhouse gas emissions while adapting to climate change. It also sets ambitious targets and identifies key strategies and actions to achieve carbon neutrality by 2045. Sacramento 2040 also includes a master environmental impact report, which will analyze the environmental effects and impacts that arise from implementing these plants. The document is currently under development and we expect it to be available in the fall. So why are we updating these two important plants? First, it's been over 10 years since we've done a comprehensive update of the general plan and the climate action adaptation plan. Secondly, Sacramento is one of the fastest growing cities in California. By 2040, our city is projected to grow by over 69,000 housing units and 77,000 jobs. We want to make sure that we're planning accordingly and growing responsibly. Third, this is an opportunity to address new emerging issues, trends, and opportunities, such as how to address the effects of climate change. This pyramid here depicts a general plan in relationship to other planning tools and documents. At the top of the pyramid is a general plan, which serves as an overarching umbrella document for other plans, codes, and ordinances. The general plan, by its nature, is more long-term and more general. All other specific plans, ordinances, and codes are more detailed, but must also be consistent with the general plan. The general plan is intended to be just that, general, providing overarching, broad direction. For the historic and cultural resource element, it establishes a comprehensive framework to identify and protect valuable historic and cultural resources and thoughtfully integrate new infill development into the existing urban fabric. But it's a historic preservation ordinance, historic district plans, and historic district objective design standards that act as, a, as Sacramento's primary implementation tools for preservation planning. We're now in the early stages of phase four in preparation of these documents, which includes the refinements of the draft plans. The documents were informed by lots of input during phase one and phase two, where we heard from thousands of community residents and feedback from the commissions as well. From this input, we developed a vision and a set of guiding principles that was adopted by council in 2019, and then a land use framework and key strategies that were adopted by city council in 2021. Since then, we've been working really hard in phase three. We've been working diligently for the past two years, writing and refining these policies, working across departments and with our consultant, and doing our best to make sure that these documents incorporate the best practices and reflect the community vision. We're now in phase four, 
where we're taking the draft documents back to the community for public review, and we want to make sure that we've got their input right. In these next two slides, we've summarized the outreach that we've conducted during phase one and phase two. Our efforts have included community plan area workshops, community listening sessions, environmental justice working group meetings, and youth-focused outreach. Additionally, we've also done virtual workshops, a scientific survey. Between the two phases, we were able to engage with thousands of residents throughout Sacramento. We will also be conducting more outreach this summer, which I'll touch on later in the presentation. The general plan uh, that's out for public review is organized into four parts. Part one is the introduction, as well as the sustainability and equity chapter, which underscores our efforts to weave sustainability and equity throughout the entire general plan. Part two is the heart of the general plan. It contains the goals, policies, and actions that will guide development for the city over the next 20 years during the general plan planning horizon. It includes eight elements, as well as a historic and cultural resources element. Part three includes a 10 community plan to special study areas, and part four of the general plan is about the administration and implementation of the general plan, as well as key appendices, such as a glossary and the vision and guiding principles. The Climate Action and Adaptation Plan, or the CAP, is an a companion document that complements a general plan and includes a greenhouse gas inventory detailing Sacramento's greenhouse gas emissions by sector. This inventory is the basis for 12 measures and a range of actions to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions to meet the 2030 state mandate and reach carbon neutrality by 2045. The CAP also includes a climate change vulnerability assessment that uses data-driven analysis to project the likely effects of climate change in Sacramento with a special consideration of how projected impacts will affect the most vulnerable members of our community. Finally, the adaptation chapter includes goals and a range of policies and actions for adapting to climate change. Earlier, I mentioned the sustainability and equity chapter. This chapter includes indicators that are intended to measure our progress towards a more sustainable and equity future, especially as we implement the general plan. Indicator examples shown on this screen here include transportation mode, share infill development, as well as a housing burden. These indicators are intended to, the results of these indicators are intended to be brought forward as part of a general plan annual report to measure our progress. The general plan is over 500 pages in, total, in totality. It covers a lot of topics. In these next two slides, I'd like to highlight some of the significant key policies and actions that are in the general plan. This includes ex expanding housing types throughout the city to allow duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes, providing incentives to attract infill to corridors and centers, as well as increasing development intensity around transit, prohibiting new drive-through res restaurants near transit, as well as limiting the expansion of gas stations unless electric vehicle charging is provided, as well as promoting heat reduction in the public realm, developing neighborhood resilience plans, as well as an urban forest plan. Additionally, we have policies to study the amortization of polluting industries, particularly in disadvantaged communities, prioritizing investments in historically disadvantaged neighborhoods, developing healthy food zoning, supporting urban ag, and uh, encouraging development that helps support high-frequency transit, prioritizing pedestrian and bicyclists over cars, and then continuing our parkland service standard of five acres per 1,000 residents and exploring a new standard 
that would provide parkland access to all residents within a 10-minute walk, as well as a performance-based system for prioritizing facility investments that would include uh, taking into account public health and our disadvantaged communities. The historic and cultural resources element is not a legal requirement of the general plan, but it reflects the importance of this topic to Sacramento. The historic and cultural resources element outlines a comprehensive framework to identify and protect valuable historic and cultural resources, thoughtfully integrate new infill development, and encourage community education and appreciation. Key moves include the development of historic context statements and surveys that include the history of underrepresented communities, black, indigenous, and people of color groups in Sacramento, as well as working with tribal representatives to preserve their identity, culture, and artifacts. There are 33 policies in the historic and cultural resource element. This slide includes just a couple of the key policies and actions that seek to recognize the history of underrepresented communities. Policy 1.13, Indigenous Cultures, indicates that the city shall seek ways to recognize the people who first lived and traveled and traded in what is now Sacramento area by working with tribal representatives to, prepare, to preserve their identity, culture, and artifacts. Uh, some of the methods may include uh, ensuring that there's public art that provides for Native American perspectives, including works by Native American artists, naming of uh, parks and places that reflect the Native American heritage, parks and recreation program that increases awareness of tribal heritage, and incorporation of traditional native plants into landscape design palettes. We also have implementation action A4, historic context statements and surveys, which states that the city shall strive to expand, complete, and update historic context statements and surveys to ensure that the history of underrepresented communities of, and black, indigenous, and people of color groups in Sacramento is considered. The public review draft for the 2040 General Plan and the Climate Action Plan was released on April 28th. That same day, an online self-guided virtual workshop was launched as a platform for the community to understand what's in the plan, explore the details of the plan, and to provide their feedback. Additionally, in terms of the key next steps, throughout this summer, staff will be presenting to additional boards and commissions, including this commission, and conducting outreach at community events and festivals. Community input is going to be summarized in the fall, and a hearing draft plan will then be prepared. The public review draft master EIR will also be released in September. The general plan, the climate action plan, and the master EIR will all come together before city council for adoption and hearing in early 2024. This slide here includes a project website where we have put together the self-guided online workshop. The online self-guided uh, workshop has been designed as the primary tool for collecting and centralizing community input for the general plan and the CAP. Today, we've held two webinars to help inform the community about the, the self-guided workshop. It's been attended by over 100 participants. Um, the workshop will be, remain open through the end of August. Community members can also email staff with questions or submit comments or letters at the email shown on the screen here, sac2040gpu at cityofsacramento.org. This concludes my presentation. Happy to, happy to open it up for questions and comments. Thank you. Great, thank you so much for the presentation. Um, do we have any questions from commissioners? Any? I've, oh, uh, Vice Chair Root, go ahead. 
thank you for the presentation. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at general plans for my work, and so it's fun to see this one going through the process. Um, I only had one comment, and it's really pretty minor. Sure. Um, it's in regards to um, what we saw prepared in their staff report in regards to um, creating programs to pro promote awareness of historic and cultural preservation. Um, I always try and draw uh, attention to the fact that most of the ways we promote education um, is kind of stuck in 50 years ago mm. um, by doing it through signage and um, specifically signage, school education programs, and cultural heritage celebrations. Um, those make sense. Um, I would just ask that we expand signage uh, <laughs> to be uh, some more modern mediums mm -hmm. um, that are more um, accessible to communities um, that um, may not be walking through that area, uh, yeah. generally trying to promote something digital um, mm -hmm. as uh, another means uh, that people can access um, um, what we're trying to promote. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for that feedback. Um, I've got a question and a comment um, on the, I guess the question is around resources and for a lot of the work, especially some of this work around tribal groups and indigenous uh, organizations where the city has done historically very little that to get to equity as we want would require like a lot of resources. So does this, do these goals come with additional staff time or with budget for these initiatives? Currently uh, there isn't necessarily additional staff time uh, that is assigned for that. However, the uh, implementation actions um, do include a time frame and a resource that's identified. <coughs> so the time frame is broken up into either uh, within the next five years, 10 years, or 15 years. Um, and then a resource is identified um, as well in terms of a lead department, a supporting department as well. Um, so in that sense, um, we help prioritize uh, the items that could be completed over the next five years, 10 years, and 15 years. Got it. Um, are there, one, one other question, are there other parts of the general plan that touch on outreach to these tribal organizations besides the historic section, or is this it? No, I, I think the, that's a good question, Chair. Uh, the environmental justice element as well looks at ensuring that uh, the city is, as a city, we're conducting outreach with our hard-to-reach communities, that we're looking at uh, implementing best practices, ensuring that we're going to where the community is located, not just asking underrepresented groups and community members to come to our meetings, looking at um, potentially developing an outreach funding source that would help ensure that we can implement some of the best practices, providing food at some of the events, providing uh, childcare services, and uh, ensuring that staff can go to where the communities are located as well. Cool. Um, and lastly, just a comment, um, inspired kind of by Bill Berg at the recent preservation symposium, but the, it just stood out to me hearing the two topics that you presented to us that, at least in my opinion, historic districts are like a key way that the city's gonna reach the climate goals. And that the, the quote he said was that the greenest building is the one that's already been built. And I know that that's like a, a saying out there, but that as we, seeing your slides also, the most bikeable, the most walkable places in the city of Sacramento are historic districts. So as we think about how we meet these climate goals, it's like the, the history is the key. So I just hope that's something that can be remembered out there, that it's not extracurricular and nice to have historic districts, but it's how we're gonna meet the most important goals that the city has. Absolutely. 
Um, Commissioner Montemayor. Thank you, Chair. Um, yeah, I just want to thank staff for the hard work on this. I know that a lot of work has went into it, and it's, since we're at the tail end of it, I'm pretty satisfied with the work that's been completed, so I don't really have any um, critical questions that pertain to the document itself, but I am happy to hear that there was so much participation that was um, provided and public input, and I understand that you already have 100 um, people that have participated in the self-guided online workshop, but what's your goal in terms of how many people you want, and how can we help to advance more participation? Sure, and, and I should clarify, Commissioner, um, we held two webinars uh, to help um, inform the community and to help us get the word out on how everybody can access the self-guided workshop and then go and provide comment. And at these two webinars, we had about 50 participants at each one, um, but we've had many more uh, residents and members of the community who have gone onto our platform and accessed the document and provided comments and feedback. So the number is much higher in terms of the feedback that we received, but for the webinars that we've held, we've had 100 participants there. Well, that's confident to know then that so much public input has gone into it, so it should be a really good document at the end. Thank you. If there are no more commissioner questions, um, we'll go to public comments. Do we have any comments or questions from the public? Thank you, Chair. Yes, we have one, no speakers slips, but we do have one speaker on Zoom. Hello. Can you hear us? This is, this is William Berg with Preservation Sacramento. And uh, we provided comments on the, uh, of the website, uh, the, the city website with public comment uh, specifically regarding definitions. There's no definition of landscapes, of sites, and cultural resources and historic resources or built environment in this section of the general plan. And providing definitions of those is really important because people very often don't know what cultural resources are. They say, oh, do you mean like the opera? No, we're talking about buildings and places and, and communities. But we're also, they're also missing in this section are photos of historic resources. Most of these are they're things like community meetings or parks, but there are very few photos of actual historic resources. In the one cases where there is one, it's talking about nominating private properties, but it's a public park. Uh, so we'll provide those in email form to city staff as well. Uh, also, regarding some of the comments on the presentation, one thing missing from it is how much of the city has been surveyed, not just business corridors, for, but neighborhood. Is it neighborhoods where the housing are, is, is when the, where the people live that are very much in need of, of protection, in need of identification and survey for historic districts? That's a large proportion of the city, including many of Sacramento's community of communities of color and economic disadvantaged communities so they're talking about uh, south end of not just oak park but colonial heights colonial acres tile park northern parts northern portion of sacramento such as uh, not just old north sacramento but del paso heights and other neighborhoods in the northern part of the city where there are homes that uh, in communities 100 years old many of these were neighborhoods of exodus where communities fleeing the demolition of the west end moved after the redevelopment era that have now become uh, flourishing cultural communities but they've never even been surveyed for historic districts and so that not just the business corridors but the neighborhoods are a key element in identifying historic resources thank you for your comments um, yes, thank you. Um, I'd just like to take a moment to echo that because I thought he, Bill made a great point about to the, to the issue of resources that in 
coming up with new historic districts and doing surveys like the African-American experience that we're going to um, touch on later tonight, the city is so dependent on grant funding from the outside world and having more of a sense of what, from Sacramento's perspective, are the key things we need to do between now and 2040 would be nice to get into beyond where can we get funding to do it. Um, are there any other, there are no other public comments, correct? Correct. That is um, any last comments or questions from commissioners? Yes, Commissioner, or Vice Chair Root. I would just perhaps add uh, that there is a glossary in Appendix B, and they do define most of those. Um, maybe a reexamination should occur to make sure that the ones that are brought up tonight are noted. Thank you. That's correct. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Burns. Um, yeah, I actually was going to uh, say the same thing as uh, Mr. Root, but in addition to that, I was going to uh, ask about how often the Sacramento uh, vision is rewritten. Uh, the previous version was uh, 2030 or 2035, is that right? 20, the 2030 uh, vision statement, which was developed and adopted in 2009. Okay. Yeah. So with the Vision 2040, is there some stickiness to it uh, where it will remain in place for, you know, 20 plus years? Yeah, that's a great question. And the city of Sacramento, um, we update the general plan every five years. So there's an opportunity to revisit this, this uh, vision in several years and ensure that it still reflects the vision of the community. And it could be, there's an opportunity to update it as well. Okay, and my point was more the opposite, that sometimes it's nice to have goals that can be achieved by not being revised five years down the line or, or 10 years. Um, it's possible that it wouldn't need any revisions, right? But to the extent that there's a new emerging issue um, that had been identified previously, there's always an opportunity to make some minor tweaks or adjustment with the overall vision, and the guiding principles could certainly remain. Thank you, and can you speak to one point on the uh, historic preservation goals uh, there's goal HCR A.5, and for uh, the public, I'll just uh, read what that is. It's short. It's the post-disaster plan. The city shall develop a plan for post-disaster demolition and repair that protects historic resources against unnecessary loss of historic fabric and speculative dem demolitions. Um, and that is the responsibility of the community development department. That's one of the long-term goals that's pushed out to 2036. Um, what, what would that entail? What, what does that goal look like? Sure, and it's, um, Commissioner Burns, that is an implementation action and so that, that you've identified. And uh, essentially, if there was a uh, natural uh, disaster, such as a flood, for example, um, and it affected uh, historic properties, we want to make sure that we are, our building inspectors are going out to uh, inspect the properties are able to um, make sure that we're um, any modifications or changes or upgrades or fixes that are being required are taking into consideration the historic fabric or the historic nature of the properties as well. Okay, so it is more of an uh, assess immediate assessment and less of uh, fund funding for exactly. repairs. That's correct, and th that is an implementation action that's a carryover from the 2030 and 2035 general plan. It is one that. Um, has been as part of the historic cultural resource element for a while. And does it uh, appear not to be achievable in the near future? No, I, I think it's uh, something that would just continue to be um, 
uh, made more robust as more resources are made available. Yeah, thank you. If I could add to that, this is a really interesting uh, concept and topic that um, I re we really want to do want to accomplish here in the near term. And um, I'll give you two sort of real-world examples. So during the Loma Prieta earthquake, the city of Santa Cruz, their downtown, suffered serious damage. I actually lived nearby at the time, and my father was the building official, so I have some knowledge of this. But they went out, and it was, in with historic buildings, it was, this building is damaged, tear it down. This one, uh, you know, th th this one can stay up. But there were no thresholds in place for how to how to make those determinations. There was no sort of forethought to what do you do with historic buildings in the case of a major uh, disaster like this. And then fast forward to the Napa earthquake that happened more recently. They had recently completed a citywide survey of their, or a, uh, a central city survey of their historic districts. And they had some procedures in place as a result of that survey for how to treat historic buildings that were damaged. And there was a lot more stabilization and, and, and forethought that, that went into the planning for that disaster. And it just, I mean, it, it just happened to be right on the eve of the earthquake, so the data was all fresh. And they could really make thoughtful decisions about which buildings needed to be stabilized, which ones needed to be, you know, even just, just um, putting in a barrier so that it, the public wouldn't be in danger long enough to assess the building and, and make sure that it's structurally safe and wasn't a danger to the public. Those sorts of procedures were, were written down and were in place and ready to go when the earthquake occurred. So we want to, Sacramento, we want to look more like the latter example rather than the former um, and, and have sort of a, a thoughtful process in place and coordinated agencies that can make those determinations um, and not, not see a lot of unnecessary demolitions. Well, thank you, Director DeCourcy, um, and thank you so much for the presentation and the outreach. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chair and Commissioners, for the discussion and your feedback tonight. Very much appreciated. Moving on, we'll proceed to item three, the Draft Southland Park Hills Eichler Historic District Evaluation and Proposed Historic District Plan. Uh, it looks like we have a staff presentation from Henry Fuse. Uh, good evening, Commissioners. My name is Henry Fuse. I am Preservation Planner with the Community Development Department. Um, I will be presenting the Historic District um, and Historic District Plan for the proposed Southland Park Hills Historic District. Um, this is for review and comment, by the way, so there's no action being taken by the Commission this evening. Um, and back in 2016, the uh, proposed Historic District was identified as part of the Mid-Century Modern Historic Context Statement. Um, among many other uh, mid-century landmarks, uh, potential landmarks throughout the city. Um, since 2016, several of those landmarks have been, um, several of those identified historic properties have been landmarked by, um, by the commission and, and by staff. Um, and this is one of the properties and, and districts that has not been, uh, action has not been taken yet. Um, back in 2020, um, outreach was begun with uh, the property owners in the historic district. Um, but as we know, the COVID-19 pandemic paused outreach on that, paused uh, continuation on that. So um, back in this year and, and the, uh, back last year, we began working with the working group again to continue this um, 
uh, outreach and, and start a plan to, to continue this uh, potential nomination of the historic district. Um, so the, the working group comprises of, of several uh, property owners and, and people who live in the district. Um, we've also worked with our previous interns to increase the um, number of criteria that we're listing the, the district under to uh, also recognize that it's historic significance under criterion one. Um, additionally, we also held recently, as last month, we held a uh, well-attended public meeting on May 4th at the Bell Coolidge Library. Um, where we had a probably about 30 people um, from the district, a potential district, um, where we gave them the presentation about the, the benefits of historic preservation and what, what that would mean, um, what a historic listing would mean, and, and if there's any additional restrictions that they would be a part of. Um, so this historic district, um, the surveyed potential district, follows a tract of about 60 homes uh, developed by jo Joseph Eichler in 1955. Um, there are 48 identified contributing resources and 12 non-contributing resources that we've identified. Um, they, the tract of 60 homes encompasses all the parcels that were developed in 1955. Um, so there are some that, uh, the 12 namely, that are non-contributing resources um, are buildings that have either been altered or lost, but they were originally Eichler properties at one point. Um, the district is proposed for listing under criterion one, three, four, and five for its architectural significance association with Joseph Eichler, and its status is an early example of a housing development that openly practiced non-discriminatory housing practices. Um, so this historic district plan, um, as we have sent around for your review previously, um, identifies the important characteristics of the properties in the historic district and identifies different housing types um, that's typical of the historic district. Uh, the proposed historic district plan also identifies treatment methods that um, are in the form of objective design standards that adhere to state law, but also uh, to the Secretary of the Interior standards uh, for uh, rehabilitation. Um, so here's just an example of, of some of the character-defining features of Eichler uh, properties that we've identified in the historic district plan um, that make it kind of easier for property owners to, to be able to understand what the, they're being asked to do um, in objective design standards. Um, so here's just some examples. Um, this is not part of the review of the historic district plan, but this is just so we um, provided this to property owners so they can understand what is under uh, level of review and what's an easier permit to, to acquire. So here's just some examples of things like new landscaping and things that don't require permits or preservation review just to assuage some concerns. Um, so with that, um, we have received uh, three public comments in support of the potential listing. Um, we've also received one comment just requesting for additional uh, information about what listing means. So we've provided them information to them. We have received one letter, letter of opposition, but we will be meeting with that uh, property owner to, to answer some questions that they have and some, uh, assuage some of their concerns. So with that, I can answer any questions that uh, the commissioners have or the public has. Thank you. Great, thank you, Henry. Um, we'll start with any questions from the commission. Any commissioner questions? Commissioner Nyer. Yes, hi. Uh, I read through the standards and criteria and just had, um, I guess, a couple comments. Uh, under the improvements that are not subject to staff review, 
there's a bullet point that says some window replacements. Uh, I would recommend just making that a little bit clearer on what the, the sum is. If it's the back, back of the property, not visible from the public right of way or a specific type of window that you're thinking uh, would be helpful for homeowners. Uh, also, just throughout the sections in general, the subsections, it might be helpful for folks if there were graphics about what you're talking about, um, the roof planes or uh, where you might want an accessory dwelling unit to be located, um, just, just general little graphics, since you probably don't have pictures of how to, how to go about things. And then there was one about um, per, uh, don't remove protected trees in the landscaping section. Maybe just describe what a protected tree is for homeowner benefit again. Yes, I can see if we can include those comments. Thanks. Commissioner Montemayor. Yeah, for the public comment that opposed um, of the historic district plan. Can you talk about the benefits of it? Yeah, so they were, um, so the the property in question, that was for uh, somebody who was a property owner of a non-contributing resource, so they just were curious about what restrictions would be imparted upon them about um, changing doors, additional security measures for their property. Um, so with that, um, so would you like me to go into the benefits of? So yeah, discuss like why adopting this historic district plan is a benefit to the community. Sure. Um, so what with historic listing, um, so there's some tangible benefits such as the Mills Act, which allows for a property abatement program, property tax abatement. Um, so newer property owners can typically see like about a 40% reduction on property uh, taxes. So that can help uh, reduce a little bit of a barrier for home ownership for new property owners. Um, we also see um, there, there are additional benefits um, just in general for that, uh, such as like stabilized property values and um, that like um, and kind of a continued um, additional review that we have over historic properties to limit uh, like development and that while still allowing for like ADUs and whatnot and additional units, we it's it's there's going to be some stabilization in the in of property values and and uh, the neighborhood in general. So, I would add to that list uh, two items: the uh, use of the historical building code. Um, gives property owners flexibility when, when modifying their property. Um, it provides certain exemptions from Title 24 energy efficiency requirements when the character defining features of the building would be altered. It, uh, we also have the historic preservation uh, plaque program. So properties that are not listed are not eligible for that plaque program. For private properties such as these, the, uh, and I guess I'm gonna add three things. For private properties such as these, the plaque program is a, is a big incentive people like to to have a historic plaque on their on their you know their home, the uh, and then the third thing is just general notoriety for the the district. We do have a, a sign topper program that's actually managed by Public Works, where um, neighborhood can um, can ask for signs to be placed on their street signs that identify it as a historic district. And at the public meeting, that was a uh, that was a, a very topic of interest that was discussed. Um, enthusiastically was the idea of, of street topper signs. So those are some of the other benefits.
Um, Henry, I've got a question or two. Um, we saw one of the public comments about a, a homeowner with a terracotta driveway or a driveway that was terracotta and is now something else. Would that fall under what you showed of hardscaping that would be exempt and therefore they're con they have no need to be, they're okay? They don't need to be concerned? Yeah, typically those types of things are exempt. Um, if they're increasing paving, we do review those types of things, but depending on um, what they're putting in, like if they're, they want to do a terracotta color, we don't really regulate color as much. And for those types of things, they're not necessarily attached to the building. Um, there's a little bit more flexibility for those things. Got it. And that's also part of, I'll also add like the point that we have historic uh, site plan and design review to allow some, some of those um, additional site-specific elements of people making alterations to their properties. Okay. Um, also, to the point about signs, I noticed that this district is right next to what's becoming the Del Rio Trail. And I'd imagine, like, construction-wise, that doesn't really matter. But I wonder if there are, there's an opportunity to create signage on the trail or establish this new district as a stop that someone would want to visit as they're traveling on this new trail? Yeah, I can include that as a comment. I'm not sure who uh, we would work with to, to get those signs okay. on the trail specifically, but I can add that and, and see if we can follow up on that. Okay. Um, and lastly, just a comment that I really enjoy learning about Joseph Eichler from this report, and I didn't know much about him. And it just kind of extra resonated right now, especially there's been a lot of hate and negativity around Sacramento recently and here in the city council chambers. So hearing the story about this son of immigrants who's a Jewish guy who was fighting for racial justice and housing in Sacramento in the 1950s and also created some of the coolest houses that we have in the city was a nice reminder of who we are and where we come from. And I appreciated learning about it and hope more people will too. Absolutely. Um, Commissioner Burns, did you have a further comment? Yes. Um, Mr. Fuse, can you speak to the uh, non-conforming uh, uh, houses that have not been demolished? Is there opportunity for homeowners to revert their houses to a uh, conforming uh, house? Yeah, so Sean, you could probably speak more to this, um, but I know there are procedures if they wanted to um, restore their building and, and basically follow the historic guidelines and make alterations to their building to bring it back as a contributor, that is possible. Um, if the building is still there, they can't reconstruct a building that's, that didn't exist and then become a contributor. But there are some procedures in place that involve, I believe, going to the commission and, and council to, to list their building after the fact. Thank you. Yes, I would just add that it, um, it depends why the building is a non-contributor. If the building is a non-contributor because it wasn't designed by Joseph Eichler or built at the time when this development developed, then it probably couldn't become a contributing resource. But if it was a Eichler building that has been modified, then it could be brought into, into conformance or its historic integrity returned by compliance with the Secretary of Interior standards during a renovation. So, um, and it would depend on the specific alterations that resulted in its loss of integrity, but that's uh, done on a case-by-case -case basis, and it's actually done uh, quite often where we have non-contributors in our existing historic districts, and people like the historic features. So I can remember a specific example that I worked on where um, a property owner's porch had been enclosed with T-111 siding on a, on a Craftsman bungalow, and they wanted that front porch because it provided this nice indoor-outdoor space, and they they were restoring the porch to what it looked like originally, uh, according to the Secretary of Interior Standards. So then that building then 
becomes what is essentially a contributor, and then there's a procedural process they can go through and requesting staff to, uh, to um, pass an ordinance to establish it as a contributing resource. Or more often, we'll uh, perform some sort of survey update like we did with the historic district plans, and then we'll take a fresh look at the district and sort of update the contributors and non-contributors, and at that time, any that have, have um, regained their historic integrity and now contribute to the district, we can then list at that time sort of in bulk. Uh, Commissioner Nyer. Yeah, just going back to the public comment about the concern over the color of driveway, it does say in the driveways and parking section that uh, folks are to utilize smooth gray concrete when expanding driveways. So maybe removing the color gray from that and just utilize smooth concrete uh, would alleviate those concerns. Thank you. Great point. Um, Madam Clerk, do we have any comments or questions from the public? Thank you, Chair. We have no slips, speaker slips in here, but we do have two speakers online that have their hands raised. The first one. Can you hear us? Uh, yes, this is William Berg, Chair of the Board of Directors of Preservation Sacramento. I wanted to express Preservation Sacramento's support for this nomination, the result of the survey, and hope that it'll move forward to listing. And I was also present at the public meeting regarding this, um, and I, the, the people in the neighborhood there have an absolute enthusiasm for Eichlers and recognize that it's not just an architecture, it is a lifestyle. And uh, the way they grasp it, though, the way I described it, it's, they sound like they're already in a historic district. Very often, it doesn't change the way the neighborhood interacts with each other and, and the enthusiasm for creating a historic district uh, is only matched by the enthusiasm for just the, the Eichlers in general. And the point about uh, the, it, the role that Eichler played throughout California in uh, defying convention and saying, I'm not going to use racial covenants, meant that he also attracted a new kind of customer, uh, a growing middle class of color, uh, some of whom bought these houses initially and in some cases still live there. So we're really proud to support this and hope that it gets moved forward when it's time to have a vote. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. And Curtis? And a brief hold because the hospital nurses are calling. Oh, hello. Um, my name is Curtis Chong. I'm a physician um, and I uh, live in 6361, one of the non-contributing resources. And we really oppose um, inclusion of our home in this plan for several reasons. First of all, you know, is, is autonomy as a homeowner. Um, you know, I feel that this is something that we should be allowed to opt in or out of. Um, I do not want to be a part of this. Um, the second reason is that, um, you know, if we're a non-contributing resource, right, because the roof has already been modified, then why can't we just, you know, keep the keep like the neighbors across the street. Like, I don't understand. I mean, I know that Mr. Dis Dis I've been going back and forth about, is there any benefit for us? But I, you know, read all the papers, I watched the videos, and this is just not something that I want to be a part of. Um, the third reason is, you know, if you talk to the neighbors, you know, and, and our community of Eichler owners is totally like, I love living in an Eichler. I took architecture in college. But, you know, if you talk to the owners, there's two camps, right? We, we have greeting, we have parties like at our house for everyone in the neighborhood, like every other month. 
it's a very strong community and we're all Eichler enthusiasts. Um, but there's some people who really want to do the project. There's other people like me who would rather not have this intervention. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to divide the neighborhood. You know, I'd rather just be given the option not to do it if we don't want it. Um, you know, and then the other reason is, is just safety. So, you know, there was a gun that was found uh, across the street, a loaded weapon. Um, you know, we have children in our house. We have an, a glass Eichler door that, you know, can easily be smashed. And if people are walking around outside and leaving firearms outside our house, we want to be able to build a fence, you know, that's compliant with existing city codes that doesn't, you know, require additional, um, you know, sort of paperwork or interaction with the historical commission. Um, you know, the other thing is there's people who are walking around visibly intoxicated outside of our house. Sometimes there's drag. Thank you for your comments. Chair, I have no more speakers with their hands raised. Thank you. Uh, any more comments or questions from the commission? All right. Thank you so much for the presentation. Thank you. We'll see you soon. Um, moving on to the next item on the agenda, item four, the review and comment African-American experience history project final draft historic context and status update. Do we have a staff presentation? Um, Chair, uh, yes, I just, just came to my attention that uh, our staff person, Carson Anderson, is not uh, in the room. So I will be glad to give the presentation. Just give me a moment. Sure thing. Thank you. Um, so apologies for that. I was communicating with Carson today, but I know he's been under the weather, so um, it's, uh, it's possible he's still not feeling well. Um, it is uh, the uh, co-project director's uh, last week with us, too, So, and I want to acknowledge before I begin that he's done exceptional work uh, on this project while he's been serving as a retired annuitant, staff aide uh, to the preservation office, and uh, he's really helped make this project a success. So the um, final draft has been circulated for review and comment by the commission. We've circulated it to our project partners and we're getting ready for um, our public circulation, but we wanted to give you an opportunity to review the final draft. And we also want to summarize the project uh, outreach and, and uh, the uh, process we've gone through to get to this point. <clears throat> so to give you a project summary, this was again. This was you, you've seen this project several times as we've as we've as we've moved through the process. For but now that we're at the final draft stage, I do want to summarize um, what the project is and um, and sort of what has occurred to date. So th again, this is a fifty thousand dollar grant from the National Trust for Historic Preservation. We uh, sought additional grant funding in terms of ten thousand dollars for community stipends that were issued to. Uh, subject matter experts and community liaisons. This was a 12-month grant, so one year. 
and the key deliverables included an African-American historic context. So that's the history of the African-American community from the city's founding through the recent past, roughly 1980. A uh, collection of oral histories that will be housed at Sacramento, or uh, I'm sorry, at uh, the Center for Sacramento History. And these oral histories continue to come in um, as, the, as we uh, wrap up our final draft historic context statement, and they will be able to be submitted into the future and that history, that collection at the Center for Sacramento History is sort of a living collection that will continue to be added to by the community. And then we had a, a historic survey project that documented individually eligible landmark properties and then a number of properties for additional research that will be part of the final draft report, which we are still working through and developing that, that collection of, of landmark properties. <clears throat> Uh, I did want to highlight some of the uh, support staff and volunteer support. So, of course, the, myself, Carson, and Henry, the three primary preservation staff, Lynette Hall with the community engagement manager, and Kelly Revis with the mayor's office, both assisted greatly with the project throughout. We had two interns and then two PhD students who helped during the summer of 2022. The interns helped for the duration of the project. We have a Sacramento State student who helped with our research uh, during the last couple months to help pull together the landmark evaluations, or I should say the historical evaluations. And then a number of student volunteers and community oral histories that, um, that participated during the project. And then our community liaison, our outreach ambassadors that received stipends as part of the project. Um, or some, in some cases did not. So our project mission statement, this was a product that we developed after our initial rollout where we really were struggling to explain to the community what we were doing and why we were doing it. So we, we got together as an as a office and really thought about what it was we were trying to do and, and how to explain it. So. These are some of the key project goals. Acknowledge racial justice using history. Document black history in a single accurate narrative. Recognize historic properties important to the black community. Challenge misinformation about the black experience. Record black voices for future generations. And then we identified some potential outcomes that would come out of these project goals. Celebrate black history embedded in neighborhoods and places lay a foundation for future grant-funded projects, leave the community with a toolkit for understanding the past, preserve places and stories important to the black community, and help advance city and statewide efforts to address racial injustice. <clears throat> I do want to over provide an overview of our public outreach process. This was a key part of the project and something that we are, are very proud of, that the amount of community outreach we were able to do. We received incredible support from the Community Development Department and from the Mayor's Office and from the um, Equity Office as well. So we had two project partners meeting, the, uh, the, the, the next one, which is, in, which is on Wednesday next week. So we will have two, but we ha we've had one so far. And then six city-sponsored public meetings, two community-sponsored meetings, 
uh, mayor's sponsored pastor summit where we gathered pastors from the black churches in Sacramento to discuss the project and how to conduct additional outreach within their congregations. We had three oral history recordings with Shiloh Baptist Church. We are working on scheduling an oral history recording at Williams Memorial. We just held a black genealogy workshop that was well attended and we provided over 400 hard copies of the draft historic context statement to public libraries and churches to be distributed in the black community. So a monumental effort for three staff um, and a couple interns, I would say. So. so one of the key questions we've been asked throughout this public outreach is where will the document be made available? How can people read it? How can people use it? It'll be available digitally on the Historic Preservation website. It'll be available at the Community Development Department offices, housed at the Center for Sacramento History. We will circulate to public libraries and identify that the drafts will be available there. And then the Sojourner Truth Museum will also house a copy of the draft. I should note on this slide as well, the, the black churches who've played a critical role in our outreach will also all, of course, receive hard copies to, for their, their collections as well, particularly Shiloh Baptist, who played a, a key role, but also City Church, Williams Memorial, and other churches. So some related um, projects that, that spun off of this larger effort. So Shiloh, Shiloh Baptist Church, I mentioned there were three oral history recordings held at Shiloh Baptist Church. These, this was a project spearheaded by one of their deacons, Dan Fontenot, who led an uh, effort to record the, the six and P members who were the original members of the congregation who moved the church from six and P who were still alive uh, from its location in the West End to its current location in Oak Park. And those uh, elders gathered on three separate occasions to record their memories of the church and being part of the church over, over the years and their memories of the West End and their memories of Oak Park upon the relocation of the church. Uh, a group of retired black police officers had an oral history um, event. Those oral history recordings are part of the project as well. And working on their own, they, they, they have a, a more informal network of black police officers who gathered to tell their stories of being some of the first black officers in the city. And there are some really moving, moving stories in that collection as well. Um, Williams Memorial has, has uh, been coordinating with us on this oral history project. That has not yet to occur, but we're working on scheduling that. We had to postpone it. It was supposed to occur last week, but it had to be postponed, so we're looking for a new date. The Black Genealogy Workshop that was held last week was a well-attended event. That was through the Black Genealogy Society, and they brought genealogists to teach, to teach members of the public about how to conduct genealogy research on their own families. And then again, all of the oral histories will go into the oral history collection. That's um, a future project because it will continue to build and be collected. So we, we'll, we do plan to pursue landmark designations of the historic properties identified as part of the historic context. As I mentioned, we've already documented about 15 of those by students at Sacramento State and then our, our um, research assistant and now our intern, Ella, 
across is continuing to compile those designations and we, we do plan to take those at a future date forward as a package of landmark designations. We also have some existing properties that are, that are listed on the national register but not our local register that are already documented that can be added to this collection of, as well because of their cultural significance. This historic context gives us a key tool to seek additional community grants, and that may be the city, and that may be other community organizations who use the historic context as background information in their grant applications to explain why they should be eligible for or we should be eligible for a specific grant. So there's always a section in a grant application asking for a background and a justification, and this document really gives an accurate historic uh, narrative that can be that can be sort of extracted and, and plugged into a grant application. We can use this document to for future placemaking efforts. Um, Commissioner Root mentioned virtual uh, or digital, so virtual uh, placemaking efforts can be can be uh, utilized here. Uh, walking tours, bus tours, commemorative plaques, art projects, murals, um, and then plaques, of course. The the oldest form. So um, then this research can also inform other efforts such as the state's reparation tax task force or school teaching curriculum. In terms of our next steps, we will likely receive additional media coverage. We already have as we as we near our uh, as we near our, our release of the final draft. We need to submit a final report to the grantor by the end of the month. Um, Director Anderson, former Director Anderson, is working on compiling that report that includes the final draft and the, and the historic evaluations and the oral history collection, and then providing a summary to the National Trust. The Historic Preservation Commission will be asked to make a recommendation to City Council on, at your August 16th meeting. So you have a uh, recess in July, but please mark your calendars for that August 16th meeting. The um, recommendation will be to the Racial Equity Committee of the City Council, who will be reviewing the draft. And this is sort of unorthodox, this, because this isn't actually a uh, nomination, per se, so it's not governed. You're not making a recommendation to City Council, um, but we're sort of making a recommendation and asking for their endorsement and acknowledgement of the project. So we'll first go to the Racial Equity Committee of the City Council and give them a chance to review it as a committee before we take it to the full City Council, and that date is yet to be identified. And then we can, um, we have formed a cadre of community partners through this effort that the Preservation Office was never um, was, was, didn't have good relationships before, and I'm really proud of the way that we now have these partnerships with the community that have formed through our outreach, and we hope that um, to continue those partnerships and to continue identifying places uh, of the black community that we, can, uh, that we can lift up through identification and, and historic preservation. So that uh, concludes my presentation, and I'm available to answer any questions you may have. Thank you so much, Director DeCourcy. Uh, looks like we've got a question from Vice Chair Root. Well, thank you. Uh, I first just have to commend staff, uh, all the volunteers, everyone that participated um, in this effort. I have to say it is a monumental feat. Um, the information contained in that historic context is wide-ranging, 
It's diverse. It kind of hits on all of the key points you would want to see in a historic context, but also hits on the key points of um, people's lives and uh, their significance to the city. Um, so I really wanted to commend everyone who worked on that. I know it was an absolutely monumental, huge grassroots effort. Um, and about that, I, I, I just want to say that um, I think this can be a um, uh, something other cities should look at um, as a positive way to approach an underrepresented community and have them be the gatekeepers, the key members that are identifying and promoting their history. Um, it's something that historic preservation has started to do more of, um, but I think it is uh, well captured in this effort. So I uh, commend everyone for that. Um, I just wanted to add one comment, um, and it was in the preservation goals and policies section in the appendix. Um, mostly to, um, maybe not a comment, just a reminder that oftentimes these types of documents are, um, like I said, well-written and intentioned, but oftentimes just end up on shelves. And I don't think that will be the case here, but I do just want to echo that the recommendations that are listed are really key um, to ensuring that this document is um, a living document. And it continues to evolve and continues to serve um, Sacramento and, um, and the community that is identified here. So thank you. Um, I've got a comment and a question relatedly. Um, my favorite part of reading through this was the very beginning about James Beckworth and William Liedesdorf because I didn't know anything about them, and that Beckworth was traveling here to California, to the Sacramento region, before Sutter, even, it seems, uh, as a fur trapper. And here it says, William A. Liedestorf, of Danish-African background, um, was the country's first black millionaire and owned all of what is now Folsom and Rancho Cordova, according to this. So A, thanks for sharing that, because that's so fun to learn, um, and especially that it's to have such positive heroes black heroes in our history and have this not just be about all the terrible things that have happened is, I think, a great balance to strike. The question is around some of these symbols who there obviously are no buildings or physical places related to them. How can we uplift and tell these stories when we don't have building to landmark or like a specific place to put a plaque? Yes. Thank you, Chair. I think that's one of the key um, it actually goes into uh, Commissioner Root's comment about how this document, you know, should not be sitting on a shelf. It needs to be used. And that is one of the key things that we can do, um, is use it to, for future projects, use it for, you know, plaques, um, websites, murals, monuments. Um, these are all sort of public history techniques we can use to, to, we need the framework, we need the information in order to do that part right. And without this document, without this framework, without this background, we can't, we can't do that second part. And so I think using this document, using those figures um, that, that you cited, and, and, and seeking out ways in the future to, to identify places for these, these markers to make sure that we are identifying the place um, or the person 
that, that is associated with these events and making sure that that's known if there's no building to preserve these sort of more conventional public history uh, presentations and exhibits, I think, are, are key. There's also the Sojourner Truth Museum is, is an excellent uh, opportunity in that they're looking to expand their museum. If you've ever been there, their collection is largely based on uh, state and national history and doesn't really have a local black history section or exhibit, and it has a very small one. But they do plan to expand into a whole other wing of the building and that features just local history. So using this document as a foundation to create some of those exhibits, I think is, is a key example of how we can celebrate uh, some of the, the figures you've identified and historical figures and then, and then identify some of the historical events that are, um, that are significant. Great, thank you. Um, any, any other commissioner comments or questions? Uh, do we have any public comments? Thank you, Chair. I have one speaker online with their hand raised. This first speaker is Carson. <laughs> Hi, Carson. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you fine. Sorry for the, uh, the mishap. I was actually going to give my presentation via Zoom, not realizing that I needed to be there in the chambers with you. So my apologies for that. I think Sean did an excellent job in my absence of summarizing the project and how proud we are of it and acknowledging the many individuals that supported this effort in moving forward. I had a point of saying to the public that we were attempting to do a quarter of a million dollar job with a $50,000 grant. So it is all of the in-lieu staff time and all of the volunteer and uh, student uh, support that we have that enabled us and then the enthusiastic support from the community and their um, volunteer efforts as well as their subject matter expertise that allowed us to uh, complete the project successfully. Um, Carson, it's great to have you here if you can still hear us. Um, it's we're glad that you're here because we just wanted to say, I think on behalf of the whole commission, thank you for your work on this project and on everything. From what we understand, this is kind of your last hurrah before real retirement and we'll miss you. And I think this project and the report speaks to why you'll be missed so much because of the great work you do and your attention to these important issues. So on behalf of the commission, and can we say on behalf of the city? I'm just gonna say it, sure. On behalf of the city, thanks for everything, Carson. And you're Thank not allowed you to talk. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> I would also be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the heroic efforts on the part of Paige and Turnbull, which had a tiny budget, $50,000, to do really like a quarter of a million dollar job. And they did it with such enthusiasm and excellence of writing and analysis. And so I and the other city staff worked hand in glove with them to uh, to bring the effort forward. So kudos to Paige and Turnbull, specifically to Claire Flynn, who is our, our project uh, leader at Page and Turnbull. And thank you for your kind uh, 
comments and remarks. I appreciate it very much. It was a labor of love for me. So uh, not, uh, not, uh, not a burden. I'll just put it that way. I really enjoyed being part of this effort. So thanks again. Great. Well, thank you. And hopefully we'll see you at the opening of this new exhibit at the Sojourner Truth Museum or somewhere someday celebrating this work. Um, I think with that, we can move on to our next and final uh, discussion calendar item, which is uh, item five, certified local government overview and local government preservation incentives, a special presentation by CLG program coordinator, Shannon Priest. Thanks for joining us, Shannon. I can remember how to do this. This is my first public meeting in person since the COVID pandemic. So lots of online presentations, but um, chair, vice chair, commissioners, good evening. Thank you very much for having me this evening. It was very kind of Director DeCourcy to be willing to invite me to speak this evening, given that I was scheduled to present at your speaker's symposium and unfortunately was ill that evening. Um, so I do, I appreciate this opportunity. I will have you know that I've been listening this evening and your comments, questions, concerns have been so sophisticated that I'm afraid that my presentation may be kind of a bit elementary for you all. It was designed obviously for a broader audience, um, you know, coming with a little less preservation background. And so forgive me if this all seems a, a bit beneath your level, um, but here we go. I actually will pass on this first part, which was just a little bit of the background about where we get the authority to kind of move forward with historic preservation in California. Obviously, it's from the Constitution, which grants every city and county police power, and it's actually from that police power that we draw the ability to conduct these historic preservation efforts. The authority comes from the court. And really, it's land use regulations that are included in zoning is the direct tie to historic preservation and historic preservation ordinances. This was just a bit of primer for you to understand the certified local government program. And I should take a step back and introduce myself as the brand new certified local government coordinator for the California Office of Historic Preservation. So I look forward to working with you all moving forward. Um, so just to launch into the Certified Local Government Program discussion, a bit of background about where the program comes from. So the National Historic Preservation Act was passed in 1966, signed into law. It established the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, which promulgates the regulations um, that really govern how federal agencies address historic preservation. It established the State Offices of Historic Preservation the National Register of Historic Places, and the Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Review Act, which again, the Advisory Council's regulations govern. It wasn't until 1980 that amendments to the National Historic Preservation Act established the Certified Local Government Program, recognizing at the time that there was a need to really tie the federal program to the local level where true historic preservation was happening. So a little bit about the Certified Local Government Program. It is a partnership with all three levels of government between the National Park Service, who began the program, the State Office of Historic Preservation that administers the program statewide, and of course you all here at the local government that are doing the hard work. 
It's a partnership. Not one of these entities really controls the process, but you have the, the primary power. So each of the roles in the Certified Local Government Program, the National Park Service provides the overall roles and provides funding from the National Historic Preservation Fund. The state office administers the statewide program. We do things like this. We come out and you know, give presentations. We provide technical assistance. We select grant recipients each year. And our role remains advisory. So we're really here to help you guys, really not to tell you how or what to do, but to assist when you need help. Local governments, on the other hand, work in partnership with our office, but have complete autonomy over your preservation program. The primary goal of the Certified Local Government Program is to integrate preservation into planning, which in the city of Sacramento, you've done an excellent job. The CLG program sets the standard for what must be included in a preservation, a comprehensive preservation program that can be certified. We expect that a city would have a historic preservation element. There was some discussion of that this evening, obviously, with talk of the general plan um, and you know what changes may be made. <clears throat> your ordinance is a critical piece. The existence of your body, a commission, is an absolute must to become a certified local government. The process to have historic contexts and surveys, which we've spent a lot of time talking about this evening, there's an expectation that any certified local government will have a plan in place to continue the effort to identify your historic places, the, those things that should be de designated to reflect the city's history. Designation process, so the follow-up to historic contexts and surveys and some incentives and education and outreach programs, which I must commend you all. You're doing an excellent job. I would say that the city goes above and beyond our expectations um, and is the, just the discussion just now of your African-American context. The robust efforts that the city is undergoing should be acknowledged and commended. And again, provide technical assistance, which you are all doing. The city of Sacramento, as some of you may or may not know, was certified on October 21st, 1996. That may not seem very early, considering the program was adopted in 1980. However, I would say that the city of Sacramento was probably the first large city program that had a level of sophistication that we now see in many large local governments. You predate the certification of the city of Los Angeles, the city of San Francisco. You were early to adopt this, this concept or this process of integrating historic preservation into the larger planning process. There are 69 certified local governments in California, all of which have very different textures, concepts. Uh, if you take a look around, you see, you'll see the city of Los Angeles, the city of San Francisco, juxtaposed with the city of Truckee, the city of Eureka. So CLGs in California come in all shapes and sizes. And that's one of the unique and beautiful things about the program is that it provides flexibility and opportunity for you to really focus on what makes your city unique and help you re retain your sense of place. So what are the requirements of being a certified local government? The first is to enforce appropriate state and local legislation for the designation and protection of historic properties. 
establish adequate and qualified preservation commission by law, which you've done by ordinance, maintain your system of survey for inventory, provide adequate public participation, and satisfactorily perform responsibilities designated to the CLG. The last is something that I would like to bring up. Um, I'm not wagging a finger at the city of Sacramento at all. In fact, I suspect you probably do a good job at this. But the National Register Registration Unit in the California Office of Historic Preservation spends a lot of time discussing how they wish our certified local governments would take this responsibility to comment on National Register nominations within your municipality um, more frequently. And so just giving a little shout out here to, so if for anybody listening, for you all to note that this is something that we would love to see um, more of from all certified local governments. Now, this is something to think about um, as it may be shifting a bit, as I've taken over leadership of this role, um, we were relying, the, the SHPO's office was relying wholly on our annual reports, which you all do. Staff does an excellent job putting together each year um, to do any kind of review or audit of the certified local governments. I was able to attend the National Alliance of Preservation Commission's meeting la in Cincinnati last summer where I was at a round table with all of the CLG coordinators from around the nation. And we listened to the National Park Service say, we really need to get out there. We need you to have boots on the ground. And so there is an expectation coming from National Park Service that our office will be out um, working with you all, looking at things on a deeper level every three years. So look forward to that. It can be a positive thing, <laughs> um, but moving forward, I think that we will be a little more active in our review of certified local governments as opposed to just relying on those annual reports. So the benefits of becoming a CLG, which you probably all know this, again, keep in mind, this, was, this presentation was designed for a different audience. So uh, one of the important things, though, is to note that being a CLG demonstrates that your work is consistent with state and federal laws and has, that those laws have stood the test of time. <clears throat> it shows that the federal government and state governments acknowledge the quality of your program and this may sound funny, but the CLG program does lend some prestige to a, sort of a, to a local government's historic preservation program. I'll just skip right through these things because you're doing them all. I guess on this slide, the important thing to note is get back to the autonomy that the certified local government program does not in any way usurp the authority of the local government or the commission. We don't... Uh, somehow come in and make decisions for you or require anything. But the biggie, the big important part of becoming a CLG is the funding. Each state is required to pass 10% of our historic preservation fund through to local governments that participate in the certified local government program. The in California, we meet that requirement through a competitive grant process. Right now, our grant applications can go up to $40,000, and those grants are required to ha come with a 40% match from the local government. The types of things that we'll fund are historic preservation elements, ordinance revisions, context statements and surveys, 
National Register nominate district nominations or multiple property documents. This is something that we're starting to see more of. Um, they often are utilized the same way that historic context statements are, but some larger cities are going this route now. Archaeological preservation plans, design guidelines for historic properties and districts, and outreach programs and opportunities. These are some recent innovative programs or projects that we have funded, including some great work in the city of Sacramento. And um, if I can have all of your attention, I would like to take this opportunity to let you know that the city of Sacramento has been awarded a 2023-2024 Historic Preservation CLG grant. So you will be receiving $40,000 for the application that was submitted for your LGBTQ plus context statement. Sean didn't even know that yet. Director DeCourcy. <laughs> um, but no, we, it's, that word just came down this afternoon. And so I haven't even had the opportunity to put it in writing yet. But I did want to take this opportunity to share with. I'm very much looking forward to you all working with you all through that project. Congratulations, guys. <laughs> So some of the issues with the CLG program in, this, in the state of California, it's really just our size. I mean, we use this map overlaid with the East Coast to demonstrate the size of California. Um, and, you know, that, that talk of National Park Service wanting us to have boots on the ground more, it's a great goal, and I really hope that we're able to do it. But based on the size and scale of the state versus, you know, our counterparts on the East Coast, that requires a lot of staff time and funding that at this time, we don't have the capacity to do as much as we would like to. Um, but Sacramento is in kind of a unique spot in the sense that you're our neighbors. I can come and I can present. Um, next time I will be much more prepared to speak to your level of sophistication. Uh, but I, we do have the opportunity to work more closely with our communities, our neighboring communities, that it doesn't require the level of travel that unfortunately, you know, some of our Southern California CLGs that requires us to get down and work with them. So anytime you have questions, anytime there's an idea or something that you would like to hear the state's perspective on, please don't hesitate to send that information up through Director DeCourcy. Make a request for us to come and you know, work with you, speak to you, answer questions for you anytime. The next bit of my presentation was supposed to be incentives. I um, had much more detail and much more information in my presentation that was geared to the broader audience. I pared this down just for time's sake for this evening. Um, and again, with the feeling and thought that it might be a bit too elementary for you. Now I know it certainly would have been. Uh, but I will slide through the few things that we've talked about or that, that I have left in here. One of the things was just to note how important our office believes the incentive portion of a historic preservation program really is. I love this quote from the city of Los Angeles that successful historic preservation programs make available positive incentives providing property owners financial and technical tools that help give life to historic properties. Oftentimes in the world of historic preservation, we're sort of in the business of saying no to things or you shouldn't do that. Um, you know, we're, we're often viewed as regulators and preservation incentives really provide the opportunity to, to bring the carrot to the table, to say thank you to property owners that are doing the right thing. 
I happen to be the Mills Act coordinator for the state of California. I have been for the last 16 years. It's one of my favorite things about my job. And so I, I'm just, I'm a big fan of the incentive side of preservation. But a little bit of background about the types of incentives. We've obviously got the financial incentives, the Federal Historic Preservation Tax Incentive Program, the California State Historic Preservation Tax Program, which just today, I believe, or maybe it was just earlier this week, public comments closed on the regulations for that program. And so we anticipate the program being up and running I would say in the next six months is the goal. Um, it's, it's a long time coming and we're very ex excited to have that program about to be formally launched out of the California Office of Historic Preservation. Of course, the Mills Act. And then local loan and grant programs. I know these are few and far between. It's difficult to get the funding and have the staff time to administer incentives like this, but both Sean and I have had the pleasure of working with the city of Riverside. They have a, you know, a commercial facade program where they're able to loan funds to improve to the standards commercial projects to really reinvest in their downtown. So anytime we can encourage a local government to think about something like that, oftentimes the funding comes from mitigation banking, you know, some sort of compensatory damage. So there's usually a negative that predates the positive, um, but it's still, it is a nice way for a local government to invest in their preservation program. The technical incentives, of course, the California Historic Building Code, which I heard Director DeCourcy mention earlier. So anything that's been surveyed or is determined by the local government to meet the definition of a qualified historical property is eligible for that alternative building code use very important incentive. And of course, local code and zoning variances. So things like parking, setbacks, things that we can allow designated properties to take advantage of that may make a project feasible if it wouldn't otherwise if they were to adhere to current zoning or current code. <coughs> Pardon me. So the Mills Act, I have to go back to that slide, sorry. My favorite the Hotel Dell, the root of the Mills Act, in case you guys didn't know that. The history of the Mills Act, actually, in case any of you weren't aware, um, is that the Hotel Dell was facing demolition pressure so that the property could be redeveloped to its highest and best income-producing capacity. And Senator Mills from San Diego was friendly with the owner, and they put their minds together and they realized the sense of place really mattered. And so the Mills Act was developed and has been in, in use really since 1973 as a result. So what is the Mills Act? It's a local property tax incentive designed to encourage the restoration, rehabilitation, preservation, or I'd like to note maintenance of a privately owned property. Um, not all local governments programs allow maintenance as a feasible use, but it, it is something that the, the statute does encourage. I mean, the intent really is for the property tax savings to be incentive for the recognition that owning a historic property can be costly. And so maintenance alone on this type of resource can be expensive, and the savings then should be re reinvested. <coughs> Pardon me. 
The program is administered by the local government. It is the state statute is California Government Code, Article 12, Sections 5280 to 5290. But within that frame is just the framework that establishes what the state expects to be in a Mills Act program. Every local government therein has the opportunity to develop a program that really meets your preservation goals. It's one of the things that I like about being the Mills Act coordinator is there are no two Mills Act programs that are alike statewide. It is true stewardship in the sense that you're able to establish and administer a program in a way that helps you achieve your local preservation goals. So next time you're hearing a Mills Act contract issue or, or talking about it, think through that and recognize what a great thing you guys are able to do. So what qualifies for the Mills Act? Anything that is considered a qualified historical property based on the definition in state statute, which is anything that's listed in the National Register, the California Register, landmarks, or your locally designated properties. However, the caveat is most local governments take the opportunity to limit their program to locally designated properties. A way, again, to incentivize people to come to the table and designate their properties through your local ordinance. Contracts are for a minimum of 10 years. They run with the title of the property. That's something that we get questions about a lot. Sometimes property owners think that they have the opportunity to take a Mills Act contract to their next home. Uh, not the case. It actually is something that stays with the property and can be something that real estate agents recognize as an incentive. You know, it can, it's, it's a highlight. If a property already has a Mills Act contract, it can be a real selling point. I won't bother with non-renewal or these things. Just a reminder that incentives exist at all levels, federal, state, and local, and they can be financial or technical in nature and that they're a positive way to encourage the rehabilitation and retention of your community's significant resources. So questions and discussion, um, I'd like to open it up to you all. And again, thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> Great, thank you so much for the presentation. Any comments or questions from the commission? Vice Chair Ruth? Hi, oh, there we are. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> so actually, I have a few questions. Sure. Um, the first one is about the funding for the CLG um, uh, grants um, themselves. Um, it seems like uh, when I was an intern 15 years ago at OHP, <laughs> $40,000 was about the cap. Um, does that increase or account for inflation or account for California is more expensive to do things in over Mississippi? So that is something that um, we are taking into consideration as there's a shift in management in our office and management of the unit. Um, I will say that it was probably $25,000 <laughs> when you were an intern at OHP many, many years ago. Um, and we did recognize that that's just not nearly, that, that's, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what these projects actually cost. I heard Carson say that, you know, you guys pulled off a, a 25 or $250,000 project with $55,000, and that's a very accurate statement. Um, speaking with consultants, we recognize that they often look at these CLG projects as lost leaders and opportunity to establish a relationship with a local government because they recognize that 
the actual CLG project is oftentimes going to come at a loss to them because they really just can't, they're going to have to spend more staff time than they're allowed to bill for or able to bill for to get the project done. Um, but to answer your question, that is something that's certainly up for discussion moving forward. The transition in our office actually just happened May 1st. Um, and so we were sort of midstream with this cycle of applications and have not had the opportunity to have that conversation. But I anticipate having a large number of conversations like that in the next six to 12 months. Um, and it, it's certainly something that I recognize needs to be at the top of the list because these projects are just too large for what we're able to fund. One of the issues with that, however, is that we do have the desire to spread those HPF funds around the state as much as possible. Um, and our Historic Preservation Fund grant hasn't gone up significantly. And so, you know, we only have the budget and the capacity to pass through that 10%, plus a little bit more. I will tell you that we're, our management is often very generous, and we do typically exceed the 10% just in an effort to balance the funds throughout the state. Um, that's the case this year or will be as we make our formal announcements. Um, but but it, we recognize it's an issue. And, and maybe I will have some good news for you next year. <laughs> so. Sounds good, thank you. Um, and my second question um, might be more of a question for Director DeCourcy, I'm not sure. Uh, but the, your point of saying uh, that CLG, um, uh, that commi preservation commissions don't always comment on National Register nominations, um, I mean, understanding that if a property is listed, it also means it's a property, you know, historical resource for the purposes of CEQA that has implications on local government is, and maybe this is just a, I don't have a good understanding of how many <laughs> nominations come to the city of Sacramento or none have just come before us yet, but do we, is that a formal process that we do uh, as part of, the, as part of this body? And that, that's, that's to you, uh, Director DeCourcy. <laughs> Thank you, Commissioner Root. Yes, I can address that uh, with, a, with a very relevant example. So um, the, since I've been director, only one nomination has uh, moved forward, and it is actually going to, the, um, going to be heard by the State Historical Resources Commission on August 4th. And we just received the notice. You have a recess in July, so I have forwarded you the nomination for the historic district on Montgomery Way, but I uh, cannot agendize that because I don't have, because of the recess. So the timing was such that uh, I couldn't agendize it, but I, I wanted to, and th this was just a accident of timing, but my intent is to agendize. And I believe, um, I believe former director Anderson also agendized regularly uh, National Register nominations when they came through. I remember at least a couple being on the agenda. Um, and so, yeah, it is our practice from, from what I recall and my intent to bring all National Register nominations or California Register nominations to uh, the commission and then also forward out um, any sort of other uh, any sort of other procedures that the state is going through or the federal government's going through, such as the um, the rulemaking uh, on the uh, on the tax credit, the California tax credit project. So I've been forwarding that on 
but yeah, it is my intent to bring that to the commission for a formal hearing and offer you a chance to formalize your comments. And, um, and the way that process has worked in the past is that the commission has, has talked amongst themselves and sort of passed um, a motion approving a set of, of points that they would like a letter to be drafted to be provided to the State Historical Resources Commission. But unfortunately, Montgomery Way just happened to fall in this this recess gap. So that's right. I, I recall you mentioning that. Um, one small follow up is uh, there, as I understand it, there's no trigger that automatically would, you know, in this way that if it's listed on the National Register, it automatically lists on the California. That doesn't trickle down because the criteria don't line up with local designation or it's also not viewed as best practice okay. i will state that that is something that our office strongly discourages and the national park service will no longer certify programs that have an automatic designation process like that because there's land use authority that comes with local designation you know those properties are subject to a level of regulation that things that are listed in the national register and california register simply aren't and so for due process purposes it's important that it come to you locally for local designation. And again, I'd like to stress that I was not in any way wagging my finger at the city of Sacramento. I was just using that as an opportunity to plug um, that, that process for our registration unit. Um, it, it is a 60-day notice process, and so it isn't always possible for CLG commissions to comment. And it also, we, we recognize in our office that based on workload and in what you all have before you that it can't always be a top priority um, but it is something that we would strongly encourage you to participate in when the opportunity arises understood thank you um, I've got a question um, we've talked some about it tonight but Native American history is something that I know a few of us care a lot about and are looking for more opportunities to uplift some of the story um, I think there's been challenges around the relationships historically, and also some structural challenges that because there aren't buildings, a lot of this Mills Act property owner stuff just doesn't, those structures aren't as helpful. Curious, we can't be the only city interested in this topic right now. So I'm curious what you've seen from your perspective or any best practices or specifically cool projects you've seen that we might look to for inspiration. This is actually a, a very important topic at this time. Our office is in the process of working on a historic context statement dealing specifically with the missions. Um, it's a multiple property document, which is a process under the National Register of Historic Places um, and will include the designation or at least the nomination of La Purissima, um, one of the missions. And then the city of San Francisco and the city of Los Angeles are both in the process of developing historic context statements. Notably, in both of those projects, the local governments understood um, that this was not something that necessarily could fit the construct of the existing historic context development statement in the sense that there was a need for a much broader outreach and relationship building, um, doing many of the oral histories and, and the types of outreach projects that I've heard that you guys underwent for your African-American or, or black context that you just are agreeing to or you know finalizing this evening um, and so both the city of San Francisco and Los Angeles in their first year of a certified local government commit or grant committed to doing that outreach 
um, building those relationships with tribes and interested parties, and then establishing a framework for a context statement that will come later. Um, it's interesting in the sense that the city of San Francisco is actually using an a American Indian context or framework, um, taking into account migration to the Bay Area from tribes throughout the country and all of the activities that happened at Alcatraz. And so they're taking a much more modern approach where the city of Los Angeles is calling it their indigenous people context. And so they're taking the complete opposite pr approach and noting, you know, working with the first peoples. That's really interesting. Do you are those both in progress now? Both of those kinds. Yes. Okay. They are both 2022-2023 certified local government grants. Interesting. And it will again just be the framework that's developed this year, with the intent to then continue those projects as possible. Okay. Well, maybe we'll be asking for a grant yeah, for that. Absolutely. We strongly encourage it. It's it's a process and a product that we strongly support. Great. Thank you. Um, Commissioner Nayar. Yeah, I was just kind of curious what the boots on the ground for reviewing CLGs is going to look like. That's something that we have um, yet to determine. National Park Service has a lot of different ideas in mind, whether it's just visiting staff, kind of talking through some projects that are on your table, listening in you know, to a, a commission meeting, which I've had the opportunity to do this evening, and I applaud you all. Um, it won't be anything rigorous in the sense that we're not gonna be diving into files or anything like that. It's just, I think the goal really is to, to reconnect in a personal way that we don't have the opportunity to do when all we're doing is looking at your annual reports and counting how many properties you designated last year and how many new Mills Act contracts you have and, you know, reviewing, you know, your vitas or it just, it's, it feels very cold and I feel like our office has gotten very disconnected from a lot of our certified local governments and apparently Park Service is hearing that from other states around the country. Um, and so the goal really is just to reestablish relationships and remind you all that we are here to provide technical assistance, to help you talk through things. Um, one of the things that our office has the unique ability to do is, it's not, you know, you're all here actually administering your programs, but we're hearing from all 69 certified local governments. And so the odds are something that you're dealing with, another community has probably already addressed. And so we can really just be the conduit to that information to help you kind of deal with projects and problems as they arise. And so those three-year audits are geared more towards that connection than having my looking glass out and, and diving into your projects. If you have recommendations, though, that's one of the reasons it was very important for me to be here tonight, despite the fact that the presentation itself probably wasn't very helpful or fruitful for you all, um, was to let you know that as OHP goes through this change in leadership, I'm really open to hear from commissioners and from directors how we can better serve you. So if you have ideas about those audits, please pass them through Director DeCourcy and he can send them on to me. I'm sure our director would like his files to be searched <laughs> rigorously. 
We have a great relationship with OHP, so I don't have any concerns about our program. It is very true. Uh, yeah, I've, I used to work in the certified local government office at OHP, and um, I can tell you the city of Sacramento is doing just fine. It's, I, I couldn't agree with Director DeCourcy more. Um, it's an honor to get to work with you all. It was a real loss for us when Sean moved on, uh, but I, for him to, to land in our, our local community and be you know, in this seat leading you all, it, it, we couldn't ask for a better partner. And you all are doing amazing work. Um, well, thank you so much for the kind words and for the presentation. Um, and if you ever are giving us grant money, you don't have to apologize for your slides. <laughs> we'll, we're happy to hear whatever. Um, thanks again. Absolutely. Uh, we will proceed on to the director's report. Director DeCourcy. All right. Thank you, Chair. And I do just want to uh, thank Shannon again for her presentation and for the wonderful announcement. That's terrific news. What a, a great way to uh, to to receive it as well at the at the commission meeting. So yeah, I didn't. I was not aware of that. But we've been working hard on this grant application. We submitted a uh, grant uh, with the same scope to the National Park Service and uh, were unsuccessful. And so to now submit it to uh, the, the to OHP's local government uh, grant program, it's uh, exciting news that we've received that funding. So um, I'm uh, really excited to hear that and we'll feel a little bit like the, the uh, dog that caught the car because we have a lot of things going on, but we're gonna, there's a fairly short timeline and turnaround on these grants. So we're gonna get to work and, and start Getting our, uh, getting our documents in order. So with that, I do have a few items for the director's report this evening. Um, we did hold our May as Preservation Month Symposium on May 25th. It w most of you attended, and it was, w it was a well-attended event with around uh, 70 people who attended. It was a very lively discussion at City Church in a great venue, and I was, I was really proud of, of the way that it, uh, the way that it, uh, wrapped up, so it was a terrific event. Next, the PNPE Committee of the City Council has reviewed the candidates for the architect position on the commission, and they have rec recommended Ian Merker uh, to be approved by the City Council, so we're uh, anticipating that hearing, and if all uh, goes smoothly, Ian will be uh, appointed to the commission, hopefully, and seated by uh, August, if, if at all possible, that would be terrific with your break in July. Um, I think in August, uh, uh, another commissioner, a commissioner uh, seated in August would be fantastic. Um, preservation staff has uh, started two new interns this week. So we had a little gap between our other interns and we were interviewing for new interns. Um, Ella Cross, who was our uh, research assistant that was funded through a grant from Sacramento State over the, uh, to, at the during the uh, during the this last winter has stayed on to be a paid intern with us, and then Derek Roberts is new with our department. They both join us from the Sacramento State Graduate Program in Public History, and Derek's first day was today. We're getting him started, and uh, Ella continues her work that she was doing as a research assistant. So we are excited to have them. It's a great relief to have to have two new students with the department. And then um, I did want to remind you again, I've mentioned it several times tonight, but no meeting next month. So 
Um, don't come here on accident uh, on the third Wednesday of the month. Um, just remember we do recess in July along with the city council and other boards and commissions. So that concludes the director's report and I'm available to answer uh, any questions you may have. Any questions for Director DeCourcy? Yes, Commissioner Burns. Yeah, the, uh, with Ian Merker joining the uh, commission, that brings us up to six. There are seven seats. The seventh seat, can you remind us what the criteria is for that position? Yes, thank you. The, the seventh seat is the qualifications are a licensed contractor. So we are actively seeking a licensed contractor who would be interested in sitting on the commission. Um, we do not have any applications as far as I know. So if you know any licensed contractors with experience in historic preservation, please encourage them to apply. Any further questions? Do we have any public comments? Thank you, Chair. No, we do not. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Director DeCourcy. We'll move on now to commissioner comments, ideas, or questions. Uh, com commissioner comments, ideas, or questions. Anyone? Commissioner Burns, was this you? Oh, I forgot the button. All right, sorry about that. We'll move on then to public comments, matters not on the agenda. Clerk, do we have any public comments? Thank you, Chair. No, we do not. All right. Well, with that, thank you, everyone, for a uh, productive meeting, and we'll see you in August. Meeting is adjourned. Thank you.